are listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves into the craft of our favorite games, whether lore, gameplay, or game design. Each week, Roger is joined by Joe, Vince, and Marty. Welcome to Fort Lord. This is Roger coming to you on the 29th of January. We've got a great show. We are actually Sanjo, but we kind of replaced him with someone a damn sight cuter and more intelligent, too. So, Allie, thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> thank you so much. We are actually going to be having a fairly short show, but that's fine because there's not a lot of gaming news. And this week, it's all been Monster Hunter World. That's all we're reading all over the goddamn place. And I had tried the two betas. It is the only game. For now, it appears to be, yeah. So, and I had some issues with the betas. So it was kind of like, okay, well, I'll wait for the PC release, which clearly is not going to be for many months now. But you two have been playing it. So we'll start with you, Allie, seeing as you are the guest. And what do you think of it overall, A, and how much time have you actually put into it so far? Not counting character creation. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) To preface all of this, Vince went to sleep and I was still doing character creation. I started character creation probably around 11 o'clock and I didn't finish till about 1.30, 2 a.m. Okay, okay, hold on now. (laughs) this This begs the question now, how much time do you normally spend on character creation? I'll, I'll be honest, on an average, when I'm playing MMOs, I can spend anywhere from sometimes 15 minutes up to 45 minutes. I know I've done that numerous times in, in Final Fantasy XIV. So this was, six, this was a hell of a lot more than that. Well, you have to, okay, we have to divide the time, okay? In, in the span <laughs> that it took me to do this, for my own tune, it took me about an hour and 20 minutes and then i had to do my palico and that was a whole other amount of time so overall it probably took me close to three hours to get it just right this is like fucking fallout 4 where you spend forever on your character and then all of a sudden it's like oh fuck i gotta do the other one too now and by the time i came to the spouse i always kind of clicked through pretty goddamn fast because i was tired of character creation by that point I mean, for the record, it took me like 15 minutes. That's very long for Vince. I'm very proud of you. I, it, You know, I went through a couple beards before I picked the right one, but yeah. So, Allie, then, based on what you have put in so far, what are your kind of your initial thoughts about the game? I'm actually very immersed in it. I love it so, so much. I think that this is a game that is catering to the veterans of the Monster Hunter community, and it really has a good vibe and a good feel for introducing newcomers. It's it's definitely still, you know, survival of the fittest to each his own, but I feel that the way that the game's mechanics are, the way that they're introducing skill sets in the story and the quest lines, I think it's, it's really kind of encouraging you to do your best. And you do. It's a very rewarding game experience because... With a lot of the quests that you do do, a majority of them you do solo. So you start learning how to 
think like a hunter. You're starting to learn how to approach. You start figuring out the weaknesses of a monster. So when you finally do take it down, it is the best feeling ever. I think Vince must have heard me on two or three occasions just screaming yes and I fucking took you down, Pookie Pookie. I took you, bitch. <laughs> no regrets. It was if, such if you look on Twitter, there's a great picture of her like hunched over the controller, sitting like six inches away from the table, <laughs> like, like a little kid. It was amazing. And that is it truly that is what the game makes you feel. The game makes you feel it's very nostalgic in a sense to where it's that game that makes you feel that you're kind of be triumphing over the obstacles and the odds that are put against you and then when you finally do succeed the first thing you want to do is collect all the skins and get the complete armor set so you could just be a prize trophy of what you just killed it's the best feeling ever how much did you play monster hunter before this i've actually never played the monster hunter series before this that's important because it is a game that is has a a fairly steep learning curve for some people. Like, I mean, there's not a lot of games that come out that have a mentoring program that the community builds to help newcomers into it. And while I think that's fantastic as a community goes, really, really fucking impressive. A a game shouldn't need (laughs) a mentoring program for you to really get a, a, a grasp of it kind of thing. So it's good to hear that you're plowing through without kind of needing that well i mean the the game it's beautiful in a sense where it encourages you to join in groups to join in squads to play with complete strangers which i've seen nothing but good response and a good reception from players that are veterans of the game with newcomers that they're very opening and welcoming with arms but you can still play the game solo and it's it's it is very much a learning curve but it still has just enough to give you that motivation to want to keep going you don't want to stop after you start and I feel like very rarely are we finding games like that nowadays. Vince, how much time have you, have you put into it? Uh, probably like maybe six to eight hours altogether. Okay. Is this just straight up? There's a like job board. You take a job, you go hunt a thing or how much story have you actually seen thus far then? Well, the, the, the general concept of the game is that the Elder Dragons are migrating uh, away from the mainland, which presumably is where all the other Monster Hunter games took place. And this is something that happens every, they say, every 10 years or so. And they all migrate to this island in the middle of the ocean. So the entire game is built around investigating what's going on on essentially Monster Island. So at least where I am in the story right now, it's all about, like, you know, building up the base. Like, uh, okay, we need we need to you know research more of the jungle, but we can't do that until you get rid of this you know poison spewing chicken. So like that's where I am in the story right now. Like I've we we were eating dinner tonight. We were actually watching some streamers doing higher level stuff, and it looks like it gets very interesting as it goes on. But it strikes me as a game where there is story and it is interesting, but for the large part, it also kind of stays out of the way of the core of the game, which is just going out there and killing awesome looking monsters. Yeah. That's the impression that I got like from the betas. Clearly that's what they wanted you to do. So that's, that was basically the extent of your, your experience there. So I was, I was hoping that even if there's not a lot of story in, in the form of questing that at least there'd be enough lore that living in that world and doing things in that world is fun 
I would I would even say as well that and this is something that I haven't seen more frequently but the environment does set the narrative to it and i mean they really they really invested a lot of time into the graphics and even just investigating and learning more about ecosystems in our own planet to learn how to integrate that into the game those do you know kind of set the foundations for the narrative as well because you understand why certain animals migrate there and why you know there are certain um vegetation's growing and why you know there is a certain habitat of mushrooms in this one particular area they really kind of intertwine that really really well yeah definitely like the world is the main character of the game and just being able to experience it and seeing the way the biospheres and the different flora and fauna interact like i mean to the point where like the this game is so much better on like a big console that could have been on handheld because now they have the power to have these stunning areas with like I, it looks ridiculous on a regular ps4 at 1080 i can't imagine what it looks like on a pro running at 4k like it's insane but also being able to have multiple of these giant monsters together and like i was doing a quest and i was you know hunting down this monster and all of a sudden like here's how i can put it to you remember way back in the day the first time you went to angoro crater and you got eaten by a pterosaur yeah oh god yeah that's this game where i'm fighting the poison chicken and all of a sudden literally out of nowhere a giant fucking t-rex just scoops me up or you'll be fighting one enemy and like literally something will swoop out of the sky and pick it up and carry it off and it's it, but it's not just like something that happens like you know to recognize it and know the more time you spend in the world the more you as a player gain knowledge of it mechanically as well as just personal knowledge because you know you can find tracks and you know that's a big part of the game is you know actually tracking down and hunting the monsters so if i'm tracking down a monster and all of a sudden i start finding claw marks for something bigger and nastier now I know to be on the lookout for that, whereas the game didn't quite tell me that because it wants you to have that surprise of, oh, shit, there's something there's always a bigger monster at the end of the cave. Like, I, I really enjoy the environmental storytelling in this game in addition to the actual story. And I think I feel very confident to say this, Vince, both of us as huge kaiju fans ourselves, the actual design of the monsters and just having to, like, dissect them as you're attacking them to figure out what their weaknesses are. It's a very, very fun experience. And just the designs is how they made a couple of these monsters is so, so amazing. If you're a fan of Japanese kaiju, I cannot stress enough, please play this game because I think you will appreciate the art styles and what they've implemented into it. See, it's sounding, going back to what you were saying, Vince, it sounds like the AI for the environment and the world is fairly intelligent, and so you, you get that immersion once you're in there. What I found, though, was when I was doing the fights, the fights themselves, I was not impressed with the the monster AI because it was so scripted that you literally could read the moves coming like time it by your watch, know what was going to happen. That to me kind of turned me off of it. I don't know if it's, if that was primarily in those few that were in the betas or if you're finding that for any monsters you've been coming up against. I would say for the learning experience, for the person who's, you know, approaching this game as the hunter, I would not be surprised if they did the beta that way where it was very cookie cutter in a sense, just so that you got an understanding as to what to expect. Because I feel more so as you play the game, 
there's a lot more of just those questionables and those unknowns that you have to figure out and you only can do it within three fainting tries. So I think that for the beta, I think they gave us the the basic fundamentals. And then as you progress further into the game, you're going to see that there's a lot of monsters that you have no idea what to expect from them. And you have to rely on just logic, common sense, and the resources that are given to you that you've obtained through the research. Yeah, like I'll say, I mean, the game is built around learning the fights and reacting to the signs that the monster is giving you. Like, okay, he's sticking out his tongue. Now I need to know to get out of the way of this stuff. So there's definitely attack patterns uh, that you'll recognize and react to. But that's, again, kind of the core of the game is learning more about your enemies and being able to defeat them. But not so much, like, like you said, like a mechanical clock where it's always the same pattern over and over again. I haven't done that, especially because such a big part of the game is hunting the same monsters repeatedly for the materials to craft your weapons and armor. Like I fought the, the Kukukachu. That's not its real name. That's just what I call it. Probably five or six times today. And while yes, like certain attacks, like I knew like, okay, it's doing this now, you know, I need to be here but no two fights were ever exactly the same, both in, like I said, the attack patterns as well as where they go. Because when you injure a monster, it doesn't fight to the death. It runs off, and you have to go track it down again. And it keeps things interesting because you're always fighting it in different environments. I almost wonder, though, to a degree, Vince, and maybe you can explain better just because I've only fought a couple of these bigger monsters once, possibly twice. As you gain more research on them, do they start, you know giving different diversions and different tactics as you gain more research on them. So you'll never fully understand what their attack pattern is or how they, how they approach intruders. I couldn't tell you because I haven't fully researched any particular creature yet, but like where, when you, when you first discover a creature, basically like the amount of information you have on it is, is just its habitat, like where you can find it. Once you reach the second level of research, um, you get to learn its weaknesses. Like, okay. Uh, it's weak to fire damage. You can cut off its tail or, you know, crack its horn or break its leg, stuff like that. And then the third level of research actually tells you like what kind of materials you can get from it. Even specifically, if there's only materials you can get by damaging a specific body part. So I don't know what more there is beyond that because like I said, I haven't fully researched any one creature yet. I'd even go so far as to say just as much as it is attacking the monster, it's being properly equipped, going in with the right equipment. And there's a lot of people that are using different, you know, item pieces from different sets to try to give the most optimal gear to go in and attack it so that you're, you're kind of resistant to what the monster approaches you with while still trying to get, you know, the best damaged output that you can. And that's a that's a fun part of the game, especially if you're a fashionista like myself. I, I'll go for all the full sets for you know, my completionist OCD, but I'll also try to put together the best sets given my preferred, you know, play style, which I'm predominantly a sword and shield. I love being a sword and shield because it's a lot for, it's a lot more forgiving than the other weapons that are out there right now. Vince, let me ask you this. We've been working on podcasts long enough now, you know, my tastes overall kind of thing. And when it comes to crafting and things like that, I know that you love crafting if it's well done in a game. How much of your love for this game is that aspect of constantly crafting your armor and your weapons versus the gameplay of fighting the monsters and going out and doing all that bullshit? Uh, I'd say I'm right now I'm pretty equally divided between 
exploration, combat, and the crafting. Like they they all kind of roll into each other and it's it's a very recursive loop of the more you explore like the better you get at the fighting the better you get the fighting the better you get the crafting the better you get the crafting like you can explore newer and more dangerous areas so it, it there's a very well polished gameplay loop that they have here that i i i'm i'm hooked like i lost time today <laughs> i was almost late picking up alicia from work really Listen, I needed to finish my uh, my Cuckoo Kachu set. It's Kula Yayu. Say it right. This is why they attack you. Okay, Mr. Robinson. Uh, so how much of this is online aspects now versus like solo play? Like you were saying you can do them both and whatnot, but is it a game that you can pause like that it's, it's local, you can pause and do whatever the fuck you want and keep going back to it when you want? I mean, to give to kind of give an idea of it, when the game, when we first purchased the game, which was, I believe, Friday night or Saturday, the PSN actually was down. So there wasn't much uh, that you could do in the realm of like online co-op or multiplayer. So it was a lot of doing solo story missions and running the expedition missions. You, I lost easily four to five hours on just expedition alone, just gathering and crafting mats, you know, farming specific things, trying to see what animals I could capture to bring back to my room, things of that sort. So just as much of it just as much of it is a multiplayer online co-op experience, but you can spend hours, countless hours playing by yourself and you'd be fine. You you don't really lose interest in it. But also more to your point, Raj, when you're out in the field, no, there is no pause because it you're out in the living world. Like if, if you want to be able to take a breather, you've cut, you've, I mean, you can fast travel back to town essentially but there's there's no pause out in the world and also like when you're doing uh, like the actual hunting missions there there's even a time limit on that like it's very uh gracious like i think most of them that i've come across are like 40 to 50 minutes and the longest i've spent on any one hunt is 20 minutes so there's there's a lot of breathing room in there if you can find a safe place to hide to you know go to the bathroom or get a drink or something it's doable yeah see that's almost a deal breaker for me now because I, I like, again, to have a game running during the day or whatever and just pause, do whatever I got to do, go back to it, keep going and, and stuff like that. This idea of it continuing, I, I'm i not a fan of that. Yeah, again, it, if it's mainly multiplayer. This isn't multiplayer, the game from that play yeah. style, unfortunately. It's funny, you were talking about how like the, the PS4 has the power to put it out and it's on there. And Joe and I were talking about um, about this earlier had he been here you'd be hearing a lot more angry comments <laughs> because of it not releasing on pc right away and not going to switch that's one of the big ones for him i'm sure it will at some point <laughs> and see that's the thing because despite my my issues with it the few issues that i did have i i'm fairly certain that I actually I would probably pick this up still on the Switch. Because A, I know Tristan would play it. Case in point, hell, he's got the Switch right now and he's playing Zelda on it. And we both enjoy kind of dicking around, having fun playing different games and watching each other play and stuff like that. And I've been watching him play Zelda and vice versa. So I think we probably would play it. And it, and it would it would be kind of cool on the, on the Switch too. God, fuck it, it's got the power to run it. I mean- Capcom knows like the reason Monster Hunter is what it is, is because it was such a popular handheld game in Japan. Yeah. 
between the PSP and later the 3DS. Like, honestly, since the original Monster Hunter on PS2, this is the first console version of the game since then. Like, even the one on the Wii U was essentially just an upgraded version of the 3DS game that was already out. So they know, I'm sure it's on their to-do list, but they're dedicating a lot of their resources right now to the PC version because when they started making this game, you know as well as I do, the Switch was a huge question mark. But now they know the market that the Switch has and that I they have to know that this is a perfect Switch game. I, they would be stupid if they didn't. See, and I, at this point here, knowing that it's going to be out on the PC as well, like Joe and I, again, we're talking about that. I... I'm hopeful that the controls will be better on the PC than what I felt they were are on on the console. And unfortunately, I don't know if that would be fixed on the Switch or still be the same. I don't know if you guys feel the same, but I felt that it was clunky and I really felt the combat itself was clunky as well. I it, I just was not digging it at all. So before I comment further, what weapon were you using? Uh, Switchblade primarily. Okay, so go ahead, Alicia, and then I'll follow up. Well, I was going to say, to give, to try to give you a better gauge on this, let's remember how Destiny 2 was as a console game before it came to the PC version. When it came to the PC version, the controls and mechanics for how you play Destiny 2 are so much smoother. I agree with you, Raj. It can come off as clunky. I actually feel, to some degree, having played Destiny 2 gave me a better idea as to how to use the uh, controls and use the mechanics in Monster Hunter World. That being said, if they're taking as long as they are to optimize it for the PC if they do it right, I think it'll be a lot better of a, a transition and experience for PC players. So I'm actually very hopeful that it'll do it'll have a resounding success on the PC version just as much as it is having right now on the console version, control-wide. Yes, personally, like I feel the controls are very tight, but the biggest thing about Monster Hunter beyond you know the monsters is that as a player, you're largely identified by your weapon choice. There's 14 weapons in the game, and no two of them are even remotely alike, not just in skill sets, but literally in the way they handle. Like, I, I don't know if you're using the Switch Axe or the Charge Blade, one of those two, I'm assuming, but that those are the more advanced weapons, and a lot of them, the bigger weapons, yes, they can be clunky if you're not used to them. That's why like, a lot of the more recommended weapons for beginners are the quicker ones, like Alicia's using the sword and shield. Personally, I started off with the light bow gun because while there were no new weapons added to Monster Hunter World, the big gameplay thing they did here was they completely revamped the ranged combat. Whereas in the older Monster Hunter games, when you were using a ranged weapon, it actually rooted you in place and switched to a first-person camera for aiming, whereas now it's a third-person run-and-gun system, so you can actually, you know, combat the monsters a lot easier without being stuck you know something's charging at you so like the light bow gun i found very handled incredibly well uh of being able to shoot and dodge and run around uh the like the actual uh like main gameplay hook of that one is called the wyvern shot where like you launch a small little mine into the ground and then when you shoot with the enemy standing over the mine and you shoot it it explodes and deals a lot of extra damage plus there's so many ammo types like the light bow gun is really built around versatility. So like I can switch to piercing ammo. I can switch to slicing ammo, poison ammo. Uh, there's a shotgun blast, like all kinds of different stuff. So I was really enjoying that, but I also found as a solo player, the light bow gun was somewhat lacking in damage because it's, it's more 
you know, support oriented of being able to like debilitate enemies and from afar while the big guys are in there, you know, hacking at it with their hammers and swords and stuff. So actually today I switched over to the longsword, uh, which is not a longsword. It's, well, it's a very long sword, but it's not what we would envision as a longsword. It's really a katana that's in a true anime style, like seven feet long and cool as shit. And that is a completely different play style. Like I had to go to the training ground and learn how to use that weapon because it's still very simple. It's one of the more simplistic weapons in the game. But the way that one works is you have your basic attacks, your basic attacks fill up your spirit meter. You then can use your spirit attacks. And if you finish your spirit combo, you gain a charge level. And then you have three, well, spirit level, I think it's called. You have three spirit levels. And with each spirit level, it increases your overall damage. So it's a, it's a very, you know, gameplay loop sort of thing of basic attacks, spirit attacks. But then the way it works overall is you have a, a move called the, uh, the spirit lunge where you charge in. And if you have spirit levels, you can spend one of your spirit levels to do a helm breaker move where you leap up into the sky and come crashing down with your sword. And if it hits, which is a big if, because the enemies are always moving around. So you want to use it at a point where you know they're going to be stationary. Then you're constantly regenerating your spirits, uh, your spirit level. So that's, it, it's such a phenomenal gameplay loop of, getting things just right it moves it still feels good like it's quick personally i don't like using the heavier weapons which were again the ones you were using roger so the big thing i can say about specifically the controls in this game is find something that works for you some people love the big heavy cumbersome weapons some people like you know the dual swords or something a lot quicker so that that is one of the bigger hurdles of the game is that you have so many options available to you from the beginning and it's not like you're learning new skills as you go. You have everything available to you from the beginning. And it's it's kind of a, a daunting test of, do I want to go to the training ground and try out all 14 weapons before I pick one? So I, I think that's kind of going to be the one sticking point for a lot of people is just finding gameplay that works. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's sounding very much like, uh, like Guild Wars 2 with the professions with all the different weapons, how... You can play like four of them and and think that the game is shit because it doesn't feel yep. right to you, and then you Absolutely. find the right weapon for the right class, and you're laughing through the game. It's that's what it sounds like. That's no. that's a pretty fair compar- comparison. Okay, well, I want I want to point out something as well, and this is about Capcom as a whole. When Capcom develops certain games and the way that they have their system, prime example being Street Fighter, which is a fighting game. It has nothing to do with Monster Hunter World. What they do is they take one sole base character up. In Street Fighter's instance, it's Ryu. He is the backbone and the DNA of how the game is played. Control-wise, mechanics, skills, supers, ultimates. And then you see that with different characters, it branches out so it still has the same basic DNA backbone of what Ryu can do, but then it caters to different play styles. You may want to be more of a heavy melee person like Sagat, or you may want to be more of an aerial player like Vega and Cammy. I think if you were to translate that or kind of make it as a parallel to how Monster Hunter World is, I think there is one base DNA backbone in the game, which I believe is a sword and shield, and then you can learn to develop what you like and what you don't like, and then you start kind of connoitering and, and trying to figure out and tinkering with different weapons to see which starts to kind of suit your taste better as a playstyle. That's something that Capcom has always done in their games, regardless of the genre, and I feel like that's something that's kind of being overlooked right now as well. 
How are you getting the weapons? I know they you're crafting. You okay. They give you the schematics to make them all, or they give you all the weapons? You have all 14 base weapons from what you complete with monsters. They actually, it's almost like a, it's almost like the old wow talent tree system where you get, you know, once you finally decide, decide and choose what weapon you want, you can figure out, you know, what resistances you want to add on to it. Maybe you want a, a, a weapon that offers some type of like a area on effect damage or maybe a damage over time. So you want a poison weapon. After you defeat a certain monster, you collect those mats and you start to right. upgrade that weapon into its tree until it's kind of its final form, so to speak. Okay, I didn't realize that they gave you everything right from the get-go. I thought you did have to actually craft some, like, better weapons as you went along. You'll start with an item box with all 14 weapons at your disposal, and you can just swap them out when you go back to your room and decide, okay, maybe I want to try this one. Oh, okay, I really didn't like how that worked. I want to go try another one. And not to mention, they also give you a training room where you can just go in with no interruptions, no distractions, and start getting a feel for how the weapon works and how the weapon operates before you finally find one that kind of melds with you, that kind of gels with you. Are there some encounters that that you pretty much have to use a specific kind or if you are if you find one you love then you can take that the whole way the beautiful thing is is if you find one that you love there is no weapon that is more or less viable than the other it's all about at that cool. point what resistances you want to put up to it if you see that you're going up against a, a fire elemental based dragon so to speak you're going to want to go with something that may have uh, some form of fire resistance if you have the mats already to to make that weapon or to kind of upgrade that weapon to whatever you want it to be all you need is just the mats to put that together aside from that there's no one weapon that overpowers the other it's all about what caters to your play style cool that said like you're obviously going to come across situations where if you're fighting a flying enemy ranged attacks are going to be better than melee attacks. Yeah, clearly. And But there's also, like, systems to balance that. Like, there's ways to bring flying enemies down to the ground. Or if you're built, if you're fighting something that's, you know, essentially a lizard covered in stone, bludgeoning weapons are going to be more effective than slashing weapons. But there, there's always ways to mitigate that and turn the fight to your advantage regardless of what you're using. And the environment helps with that also. If you see that you're in an area where you are fighting some type of flying weapon, you do have certain ledges at your disposal where you can jump and mount on the monster. To try <laughs> to and that's a great, that's a fun part of the game. I try to mount every every animal and every monster that I see. I try to get on top of it and make him a bitch. So you can do that if you want. And that's also a wonderful way that the games implemented the environment into the combat system. It's a lot of fun. Like I was watching a stream yesterday and the guy was using the hammer, which is one of the biggest, slowest weapons in the game. So it's a very deliberate play style of, you know, waiting for your moment, charging up your attack and just beating the shit out of something. But he realized there was a particular like environmental feature here. So he was able to take his giant ass hammer and ninja run 30 feet up a wall, backflip off of it, and then just do like a spinning smash into the top of this monster's head. So again, there there's always ways you can use the environment and the tools at your disposal to to do cool shit and effective shit at the same time i was just watching a video too where somebody was using an insect glaive which it does have a, a good amount of, of damage output but literally he did mid-air stops to just strike the flying monster all the way down to the ground to the point that it was stunned and then that's how he ended up defeating it it was absolutely flawless it was beautiful all right then before we move on parting thoughts vince 
uh, as glowing as I have been about the game, I will say one particular negative for me uh, is that I find in a lot of situations, the text can be very hard to read. Like we have a 42 inch TV, which well, by no means large by today's standards, I will say is at least average to slightly above average. And the text boxes, like it's a little too small for me at some points that that's my biggest negative I can say about the game at this point. I, I can still get by, but at some points I have to like pause for a second and okay, that, okay. That's what that word is. I would say I agree with uh, Vince on that one, but also Matthew Mercer is a voice actor in the game. So I completely get by just on his soothing <laughs> almond, like butter voice and I'm okay with it. So it's all about interpretation. True, true. All right, let's move on from there. Marty, you wanted to talk about Solaris. Man, I don't know how I'm going to follow this up because, like, you guys uh, are making me regret buying my book instead of buying Monster Hunter, and that's not an easy thing to do. That's um, what we do on this podcast, Marty. Make you <laughs> wish you could play more games. Is, oh, my God. That is so true. Roger has been single-headedly ruining my wallet for six years now. <laughs> I could have been engaged by now. <laughs> Thanks, Raj. Thanks, Raj. Oh, man, I'm so glad I met my wife before I met Roger. Um, anyway. Hey, for the record, those two numbnuts wouldn't know each other if it wasn't for Roger, okay? So let's let's back this shit up, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's move away from nuptials and wallets and whatnot and talk about space. And the fact that Stellaris 2.0 is going to drop February 22nd, and they have added an entire rework to the war system, uh, to the faster-than-light travel system. They've added a whole new series of races. They've add, they're going to add uh, two new ship categories, uh, I basically Death Stars of, of a variety of types, and, like, Super Star Destroyers. Go on. You can blow up <laughs> other people's planets now, Vince, or... Maybe you just want to take over their planet and the cities that they've already inhabited. Then you just buy the neutron sweep module. Or let's say you're a pacifist. You just put them in a glass. A what? I know, right? Think about this. This is this is probably the more sadistic than blowing up their planet. You just put them in. What is the name of the kryptonite city that is in the bottle? Isn't it like... Candor? Yeah, you can candor an entire planet. Or... Hey, wait, 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 wait. These are other real people you're doing this to, like multiplayer or just NPCs? You do it multiplayer. You can multiplayer, like multiplayer, somebody getting trapped in one of the glass in the the pacifying ball, so they're calling it, which <laughs> they're encouraging modders to create it so that it lo- to create a mod so that the pacifying ball looks like a Pokeball. Like they're on the stream <laughs> saying this. That is they're- the greatest troll move ever. <laughs> oh my God. There's another, there's a god ray that can either, one, like, turn people into your robots, or two, turn people into spiritualists who follow your god. I'm not sure exactly how this works, um, but it's a variety of types of empire can be, like, super spiritualist, and they want you to follow their deity. And there's any number of story vignettes about uh, pre-fall up, precursor civilizations that had this type of an issue. It looks like this game is going to be uh, just get a whole new leg on life. It's just, 
they, there was a stream and I don't watch game streams just on principle, but for tonight I made sure to watch. And the coolest thing is that they're space Mongols. They literally made space Mongols that had their own little like empire. They control a certain area of space, but they're, they're like, uh, if you crossed the quarians from mass effect with any nomadic horde tribe, like people from earth. So they, sorry, can't do that. I made their species go extinct. <laughs> well, <laughs> wait, hold on, hold on. I, uh, before I, I'll answer your question in a second, but are you, you telling me that you like you killed Tally and her people in a mass effect run in my renegade run? There was more than one genocide on my record. Let's just put it that way. This is not new news. Let's let's move on. We've right. <laughs> this is well tread land. Let's just <laughs> so just so I'm understanding, and I apologize, oh forgive me for my ignorance. But is Solaris Civ Six in space, or is it Eve Online? I'm trying to make sense of it. A little of column A, Alley. A little of column B. There's. Not... I would say a lot more of Civ, though. Oh yeah, a lot more of Civ in space. In fact, uh, when I started playing it, I was jonesing for an old Mac game called Spaceward Ho, which was just build up a ship, explore the universe, conquer your neighbors. And this game has that with so many like nods to Civ. And yeah, you're not piloting a ship, but you there are mods that let you. Um, zoom in closer or rotate the camera so you get the full 3d effect and you can pretend but it's more sieve than anything it is a 4x game that is based on exploration really but you can now blow up your neighbor's planet um and then mine mine the planet because why not so basically you become gary (laughs) (laughs) you're you're destroying mercury (laughs) in the process you bastard yeah um, I mean, and I still have yet to win a game playthrough. Like, still, still, motherfucker, it's it can't be I, that hard because people would have stopped playing by now. Well, it's one of those things where it was probably my fourth or fifth game of Civ before I won one because you just there's just a lot to learn, and you know, you, sometimes you don't realize until a couple hundred turns in that you're not going to win. The difference, I think, with Stellaris over Civ is an average Civ game can run, you know, 30-ish hours, whereas an average Stellaris game uh, may be closer to triple digits. So it, it might be the same amount of games to a win state, but not the same amount of playtime, let's put it that way. And, and to be fair, I'm playing it, I want a specific kind of win. I don't want to go play a space fascist. I want to go fight space fascists. It's a totally... Space fascist is easier mode, I think, because you just... Go around blowing everybody up, and I don't want to play that way. Well, all right then. Okay. But. But. I also, um, last time I went looking for mods to talk about on the show, uh, I immediately logged out of Steam and took a shower because I found a whole bunch of, like, you know, Kekistan Trump supporter mods in the Steam workshop, and I thought that was disgusting, and I wanted no part. Uh, I went back today, and there are streams now of the Star Trek mod, which changes the way you play in the sense that instead of like, you know, you go by uh, the current way the game is structured, the vanilla game, it's a year by year. Um, But 
in the Star Trek system, there is an era system. So you will get like uh, a ship from every era of Star Trek, uh, including, I believe, some of the books and the animated series. So you like they showed the stream in the Star Trek New Horizons mod where you are. There's a fleet of Defiance and of my favorite Star Trek ship, which we only get to see a couple times in Deep Space Nine with the Akira class, just blowing the shit out of some Romulan birds of prey. And I need to play this now um, because uh, I don't like any other Star, Star Trek game. I need to play this one. Post that link, please, to that mod in our Discord channel. OK, you got it. That will get me into it faster. <laughs> I figured because there's again. I've been wanting to get into this game since I fucking bought it when you first brought it up, but it was one game after another that I was playing. And now I'm well over 100 hours into Breath of the Wild and still nowhere near done, but still absolutely loving it. But th- that would literally be enough for me to take a little break from that and, and do some of that of Stellaris. And there are story-driven events in that mod as well. Um, Borg invasions, species 8642 invasions, the arrival of the um, doomsday weapon from the, the original series, and I think one other. Um, trying to remember what was debuted, but I, I don't remember. Um, I th- oh, and yeah, you totally play Klingons, uh, Cardassians, uh, Tal Shiar get the opportunity to you know, sabotage your shit. So that's pretty cool. There is one, one other mod I also wanted to bring up because uh, I thought if anybody, Joe would get a huge kick out of this one. Uh, there is a Warhammer 40 K mod where you can play the Imperium of man and deal with all the fallout of humanity in the 41st grim dark future where there is only war. Uh, it's gorgeous. It's, it's, Games Workshop style art uh, from everything from their cathedral style battleships to their multi tentacled and weird looking forces of chaos. You have your Imperial Guard worlds. Um, I would be surprised if Gaunt's ghosts don't make an appearance. Uh, For those who don't know, that was a pretty cool book series by uh, now comic writer Dan Abnett, uh, who signed an exclusive to DC Marvel's Loss. Uh, it's a stunningly beautiful full uh, conversion pack uh, that I'm surprised uh, looks as good as it does. It looks phenomenal. So if you play 40K and you want to try out Stellaris, you get your space marines. You don't get to play as a space marine, but you do get to blow shit up uh, with one of the dreadnoughts. Any others? There are a few. There was a Dune one that looks interesting, but it doesn't look completely up to date. And a um, Stargate one, which was a dispute between mod collaborators. It looks like one branched off the other and they're not, you know, giving each other proper credit for what they do. Um, And a Star Wars one, which is just a a series of skins. Uh, no story events like in New Horizons and in 40K. There are story events that uh, come from their various source materials. Um, like you will be part of the Grand Crusade or you would, you know, invade. Uh, oh, you get like, oh, that was it. You get invaded by one of the things that happened in Enterprise that I don't remember because uh, I don't want to remember Enterprise. I'm hoping that. There's a Apple type one more thing at the end and you're saving the best for last. 
Well, Roger, one more thing. Dude, please tell me there is, because if so, motherfucker, I'm installing it right now. <laughs> well, not so much for you, but to our wonderful listeners. Uh, it was brought to my attention uh, the other day. There is currently a Humble Paradox bundle. Oh, yeah, I knew that. Uh, with a, an assortment of strategy games, which is, of course, what Paradox is known for, uh, as well as Magicka 2, Pillars of Eternity, which is a fantastic Baldur's Gate-style game, and for the low, low cost of $12, Stellaris. Okay, that's not what I was talking about. I want a well, Firefly mod. I'm trying to pick up Marty's slack. Sorry. If there is I, not one, somebody better get their shit together. <laughs> I did not see one. Fuck. I know. It's got to happen. Come on. I I wish I could tell you otherwise, <laughs> but there was Dune. There's Doctor Who. Um, But I did not see a Firefly one. Doctor Who? But not Firefly? How does that make sense? In what universe does that make sense? The internet is an awful dark place. All right. Anything else you wanted to talk about with uh, Stellaris? Probably not. Um, Yes, but, like, we don't have all the time for me to talk about Stellaris and how I can't win and how those fucking plant people have it coming. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. We are going to have another subject. We're going to have another Destiny feature at the end here. Marty's still doing some history lessons, and that is going to call it a wrap for tonight. Thank you very much for listening. You can find the show notes at For the Lore. Marty, do me a favor. Any of these mods that you found that you thought were actually quite good, not just those two, but any others, slap them in the Discord. I'll take them, and I'll put them in the show notes. Or if you're interested, make sure to check out the show notes for this episode, uh, episode 289, and then you'll be able to get those as well. So make sure to check us out on uh, Twitter at For the Lore. Individually, Joe, who wasn't here, is at J. Vince is Simodian. Marty is Officer Gleason, I am Zen Buddhist, and Allie is Pizza Maid. And of course, you can find her Twitch channel. Make sure to check her out, sub to her. It's fantastic stuff. And with that, we'll let you go, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Okay, class, now that everything has settled down from yet another new monarchy win, I, hold on, excuse me, I said settle down. I don't want to have to repeat myself, okay? All right, given the monarchy's win, and given that I am talking to every, to us about the history of the city and its interactions, I think it's best to start with the new monarchy. Um, and I want to start with what they did well. See, years ago, uh, there were the faction wars, wherein groups of humans tried to get guardians to fight for them for control of the city, for control of weapons foundries and ships and training and guns. And that nearly tore us apart. Uh, from the faction wars arose a new fa- uh, a group known as New Monarchy, and they quickly joined the Consensus, where they have watched over the Speaker, the Vanguard, other factions. And to be fair, they've done an okay job. Uh, When the Red War came, they provided more food, shelter, clothing, and safety to citizens, regardless of their faction, allegedly, more than any other faction. Executor Hideo has been a very popular figure amongst the Guardians and the Vanguard. Uh, 
Not super popular with all the Titans, but they are very fond of Zavala uh, until Zavala said no. What did Zavala say no to? Well, let's talk about what they get wrong. Now, what they get wrong is this. There are seven tenets to the belief system of New Monarchy to be a part of their crew. And I'm going to start in uh, with number seven, going down to one. Because I feel like we read the first half and like, oh, they sound like pretty okay people. But let's go backwards. I think that's a better place to start. Number seven, to vote by, excuse me, let me start over. Two, by vote of the consensus, you know, the ruling body of the city, abolish the consensus and transfer ultimate power in order that the rights and liberties of all citizens be secured to a single sovereign of unimpeachable character. I don't know how many years it's been since humanity had monarchs. Single sovereigns of unimpeachable character. I haven't met one. I don't know of one. So how is that going to be? Let's go to number six. To hold all individuals, compacts, and alliances to the highest standards of productivity and right behavior. Already in number six, we're seeing some of the ideals that New Monarchy has. It's a, they have set a very specific range of behavior, what they believe to be product, you know, productive and right. So if you disagree with them, and you need to be held to a higher standard, how are you being held accountable? Well, if it's a monarch, throughout human history, monarchs have done bad things to people that they didn't think were, you know, too high standards. Moving next to number five, to support the natural harmony of the city and to actively dissuade any group or individual that might disrupt that harmony. Future war cult in dead orbit disrupt the natural harmony. Don't believe me? Dead Orbit wants to leave. Dead Orbit believes that we are literally in a dead orbit around a dead sun and that we need to leave our birthplace in order to make, ensure the survival of the species. Before, this, uh, before the Traveler woke up, this was a pretty valid point to place. New Monarchy and Dead Orbit have had a rivalry that is legendary. Leaving the city, which New Monarchy thinks is a bad idea, uh, is the entire purpose for Dead Orbit. And now let's look at the future Warkle. Those mystic, war-loving whack jobs, who some of them I'm very fond of, are always talking about the next conflict. They're always looking forward to the next fight. And while that's useful, what happens when the next fight is intermittent, is interesting between Guardian factions? when it's between New Monarchy and Future War Cult. What if Lakshmi 2 basically points out that Hideo is a liar because he's not to be trusted? Well, now all of a sudden they're disrupting the harmony. Those in power decide what is harmonious and what is not. This is a problem that you should be careful of the next time you go celebrating with New Monarchy if they win. Number four, to support the Guardian Orders by leading the city in technological innovations. All right, well, great. You give the Guardians some fancy new toys. Everybody loves toys. Three, to sponsor the sciences of the city and, salvages, and salvage the ruins beyond so that our golden age might be reborn. All right, even Dead Orbit would agree with that one. 
Number two, to secure the rights and liberties of every upstanding citizen. <clears throat> rights and liberties shouldn't be conditional. Rights and liberties are guaranteed because of your status. Should Banshee44, who has a really bad memory these days, be not treated like a citizen because he's no longer upstanding? That's a bit of a problem. And number one, to secure our walls from the enemies without. And uh, there's other ones that say to secure the enemies without and within. Uh, securing the walls are fine. The walls did nothing against the Red Legion. Zavala even said so. All of this with new monarchy and the good they have done. Uh, I skipped an amazing. Uh, I skipped one amazing point that I should remind us of. Uh, there was a faction after the foundation of the consensus called the Concordat, led by Lysander, who was a guardian, or so we're told, may not have been a guardian. But Lysander and his Concordat conspired to overthrow the city. New Monarchy and its militia took them down. They saved the city from a civil war uh, from raging again. Uh, you know, there hasn't been significant fighting in the city up until recently uh, since the faction wars ended. This is all to say. New Monarchy's got some fancy toys. New Monarchy has some fancy clothes and armaments for you. New Monarchy does not necessarily have your best interests at heart. So next time you need to pick a faction, my friends, maybe consider going with somebody else or maybe not playing the game at all. If you have any questions, comments, or vague misgivings, you can send it. You can find me on my feed at Officer Gleason. You can contact my dean at Zen Buddhist. Unit ZJ is at Loader ZJ, and Samodine is at, at Samodine. Questions, comments, vague misgivings, like I said. Oh, and uh, one page paper on factions of the city due on my desk by next week. Until next time, archaeologists, guardians, and fairly decent students, take care of yourselves and make sure you shoot the fallen right between their eyes. Thank you for listening to For The Lore. If you'd like to hear more from the guys, check out Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince, a movie, TV, and anime podcast, as well as Lore Watch, a Blizzard lore podcast co-starring Joe. And if you're into comic books, check out All Comics Considered with Marty and his crew. Lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. You can find him at ManelliJamal.com as well as on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs.